coming together from across the United States. The real issues you don't hear about elsewhere. Focusing on what matters to you and your neighbors. Welcome to Resist Bot Live. Hi, everybody. It's April 24th. I'm your host, Melanie Dion. That's Aria's tale, and this is Resist Bot Live. Welcome. This week, we're talking about reworking the poor tax. We're talking about how cities are attacking the problem of being unhoused in their cities and treating unhoused people as though they are the sole problem. We're here today at 1, like we are every Sunday, 1 p.m. Eastern, on YouTube. If you want to catch up with us every week, you can subscribe. Just go to rs.bot slash video. If you're listening from a podcast, you can A, join us on Twitter or anywhere using the hashtag LiveBotters. And you can subscribe to our podcast at rs.bot slash pod. And I'm saying listen from a podcast. I mean, obviously, listening from a podcast platform. We're the podcast, Resist Bot Live. So thank you again for joining us. As I mentioned before, we're talking about homelessness, unhoused people, and starting with the fact that 47 states in the District of Columbia have at least one law that restricts acts like panhandling or standing in roadways, building encampments, a number of activities that unhoused people rely on just for survival. So I'm going to start bringing up the all-girl band, and we are going to get into this discussion. First, I'm going to bring up Athena Foulet. Hi, Athena. Hi, Mel. Hi, everybody. How's it going? Going great. How are you? Ready to get into it today? Good. Happy to be back this week and, and learn a little bit more about how different states are treating the unhoused and what we can do about it. Welcome back. Welcome back. Thank you so much. And we also have blogger extraordinaire, Susan Stutz. Hello, ladies. Hey, Susan. Happy Sunday. Happy Sunday. I look short compared to y'all. It's all about a camera tilt. (laughs) Right, right. So, Susan, we're going to be talking, A, about what different states are doing, and B, we have a few petitions that we'll be getting into And then what new petitions can look like. So we'll be talking about that as well. I think the first thing when we start, when we think about humane treatment, when we think about policies that have human interests, typically this conversation goes more or less with one side or another having the blame on the issue, on an issue, right? This is something that is not at all partisan. Susan, you live in a state that's not necessarily a blue state. Florida is decidedly a red state. I live in a red state as well. I don't necessarily see that many policies here. Not that they don't have them. But when we look at that, it seems to be something that's not only a a partisan issue. Do you see much difference in, in Florida where you are, which is also very touristy? You know, I know that we have some panhandling rules, laws. It used to be that there were a lot of people at our highway exchanges and our intersections in our bigger cities, more towards South Florida. But, you know, I don't see it very much anymore. And I know that there, you know, you get into the bigger cities and there's definitely more unhoused people. It's a bigger concern in the bigger cities. I don't see it a lot where I'm at presently. 
although it, it absolutely does exist, but it doesn't, at least the, the places that I go, the things that I see, I don't see a lot of it. And I don't see encampments and things like that, that I know that we have in bigger cities and bigger states. And I think that's, I, I think one of the issues that I've been reading up on is when we start dealing with those bigger cities, those places tend to A, skew a little more liberal and B, people consider those opportunities to be greater when they are unhoused. I am sorry. Aria is back here going ham. She is not loving anything. She wants to be in show business today. I'm in New Orleans and we definitely, there's a, there are a lot of unhoused people here. There are encampment sites at various parts and at various places in the city. A, it's very coming and going. We have a lot of a tourists, entertainers, you name it. So that means that there's a lot more likelihood for people who try to make a living out here and just and just don't. When we look at when we look at the actual policies and every and, and pretty much everywhere, like I said, 47 states and, and, and DC have these policies. But the especially in, in recent months, one of the biggest voices or one of the biggest folks on display has been in New York City, Mayor Eric Adams has done a lot, has done a lot to say that he wants to rid these, um, sorry, rid New York City of the homeless problem, but his tactic has more been geared toward attacking unhoused people. We've seen a lot of the, we've seen in the news, the encampments being torn down, the sweeps in the subway, things like that. I would like Athena to kind of get your thoughts a bit on what that looks like for you in D.C., how government has been addressing homelessness and unhoused people in D.C., and where you think some of those cracks are in the process. Sure. So I think D.C. is unique for a lot of reasons. One, it's not a state. Two, its funding is usually very closely tied. Anything the city wants to spend their money on needs congressional approval for it. But I have to say, as far as, and the populations that are unhoused in Washington, D.C. are vast, I think given the size of what the city actually is versus the number of people who are unhoused at the moment is pretty large. However, I do have some good news in that there's a homeward DC plan that the mayor's office does that comes at this issue from a variety of options. One is eviction moratorium and not allowing that, supporting a number of shelters around the city. Now, again, when you're talking about homelessness, it's more than just there's a very there's a easy black and white way of looking at it and saying these people are just not do, do not have housing for whatever reasons economic health or whatever issues they might be having. But DC looks at it from several angles, which has allowed it to actually have, I have some statistics that were just shared to me this week, actually, that the housing, the homelessness in DC has dropped by 13.7% across the city. There is something called an annual point in time survey that a lot of people working in this field do a census, basically, of those experiencing homelessness across their regions. And D.C. had a, as far as single adult homelessness is concerned, not families or anything like that, there's been a 22% decrease in single adults. So how is this happening? A lot of it is, again, sort of, there's never really one quick answer. I, I know that there was that story in Utah where they just built homes for the people experiencing homelessness, and that drastically cut that, and were able to support and uplift them out of that. So that's definitely one way, resources allocated that way. But so DC is looking at it from a little bit more of a holistic viewpoint. We're trying to make sure that their experiences and reentry are positive. They get collaborative assistance to these agencies that are working uh, with people experiencing chronic homelessness, 
chronic homelessness is six months onwards, basically. But what I think also makes D.C. unique is this idea that Veterans Affairs is here in Washington, D.C. Not to say that Veterans Affairs isn't around the U.S., but I feel so many of the stories of our friends experiencing homelessness are, I've come here to claim what's due to me. I have come here seeking assistance, or I have come to the D.C. area to seek out what was owed to me given my, my, my time in the service or what I feel was due. So I, in my experience in, in street greetings is there's a significant, and I'm also happen to be in the Foggy Bottom area. There happens to be a tremendous amount who are veterans. And if people take the time to have conversations with these folks, we'll quickly realize how much closer any of us really are to homelessness versus launching ourselves up into space to explore the stratosphere because these these folks are not some definitely are struggling with mental chronic mental illness and and down in their luck as they would say but a lot of this is a manifestation of systemic marginalization and oppression by our systems so yes i think dc i I, when you read about the homelessness and, and tips and suggestions on how to work with them a lot of the recommendations you'll see are people saying move to more liberal cities move to cities where you know the resources are available to to help and support people coming out of that and so dc i think matches that in a good way but it's it's never going to be enough but it is a relatively decent success story on our end here in dc thanks so much and that's the thing let's i'm glad you mentioned that because i'd like to talk a little bit about the breakdown of what homelessness looks like like who's who's out there you mentioned veterans and that's roughly about 11% of the homeless population. When you look at from the perspective of a physical ability, 40%, over 40% of unhoused people are also disabled. And then when when you not only look at that statistic of them being disabled, but then you have to start dealing with what does receiving services look like for them? What does it look like if they get to a shelter and that shelter isn't accessible? I talked to our friend, Melissa Thompson, because I'm always loving her input. And she has done some work on a report with the uh, with the Century Foundation. But one of the things that she said to me, or one of the things that she actually said was that uh, disabled Black and Latinx renters were especially likely to be housing insecure. And that's roughly at 50, 52 and 50% respectively. And she went on to say that the significant unemployment and underemployment rates of dis- of disabled people in comparison to their non-disabled counterparts, especially those of color, as well as a host of other factors, contribute to houselessness of disabled people, and it goes un- ignored and unnoticed in these discussions. One of the reasons it's so easy to push past this problem is because we're pushing past the people who in other ways get ignored anyway. When we're dealing with people of color, when we're dealing with people who have mental illness, when we're queer youth, 20 to 40% of queer youth are homeless. And if you just look at New York City, the average age for gay and lesbian youth, 14.4 years old. The average age for trans youth, 13.5 years old. So when you go back to encampments being destroyed, when you go back to people being rousted on the subway, when you go back to people being rounded up, some of these people are children who need other services, who need educational services, who need family services. And instead, they are being forced into more times than not more difficult situations. I mean, that nothing 
everything is connected, right? When you look at unhoused youth, then you have to look at sex trafficking. It's just one thing after another, and we're not dealing with the issue. And when we're talking about liberal areas and liberal cities, it's absolutely the place where we're more likely to find aid and and programs. But one of the things that I've been reading on the New York Times had a very interesting video about the role that blue states and blue cities play in the wealth gap, in the housing crisis. So when we start talking about being housing insecure, when we start talking about homelessness, as much as we want to, you know, point fingers, Tennessee just made this bill that's basically a poor tax where you, for panhandling and encampments, a $50 fine and you have to do community service. I mean, it's free labor. You're exploiting unhoused people for free labor and there's no other way to look at that. But when we start talking about who's really enforcing these policies, even when there are Democrats in who are basically controlling policy in these states, there are still issues where they're still... California is a huge example of these quality of life policies that absolutely criminalize homelessness. There's no other way about it. These are the places that have what they call um, hostile construction, where there are spikes on the ground so that people can't sit there. There are gaps in awnings so that you can't be sheltered from the rain or the elements. We just had Earth Day. Unhoused people are the first people to be impacted by to be impacted by climate change. When we look at how there's been there's noted increase in heat stroke. There's and, and none of these things, these aren't the things that are being addressed. There are so many issues and solutions that are being leapfrogged over in favor of fines, service, throwing things away. I wanted to talk a bit about who's doing the work, though? Because you mentioned some about D.C., Athena. Uh, you mentioned, and there's also, we've talked about New York, and there's uh, Project Hospitality with Reverend Troya, who is doing amazing work in Staten Island. I'm here in New Orleans. You've, you've heard me talk a fair bit about Alan Keller and the work that he's doing with Tailgate Together, hashtag Tailgate Together, who one of the reasons that it's been difficult to schedule him is because on every sun, every Sunday he's out feeding unhoused people and things like that. So I wanted to, when, when we talk about how terrible things are, I'd like to talk a little bit about the things that you've seen that have worked or anyone that you want to put a spotlight on who's doing the work, especially in helping unhoused or, or, or people who are housing insecure. Sure. Um, in D.C., there, uh, again, we're, we're pretty fortunate. There's a lot of infrastructure for this. I know some crews who go out on Friday nights, and the the tent cities in the D.C. and the city specifically are very are getting more and more organized. So they have welcome tables now. People are giving them food throughout the week. So I, I think we've come to a point in D.C. where we're seeing that it's not just a matter of, of feeding and, and and charity, right? If we want to be serious about getting folks off the streets, ending chronic homelessness, providing the safeguards and buttressing support nets that they need to be able to climb out of it and stay out of it. A lot more needs to be done. And those are sort of the questions that I think your average person would be more than happy to bring a sandwich to somebody on a corner, but to have a real meaningful conversation about what it means to create legislation that makes us a more livable city for every economic bracket. Uh, Things like that need to happen. So uh, organizations that I would absolutely 
like to do shout outs and supports to Miriam's Kitchen here in Washington, D.C., uh, Bread for the City, also a great organization. The Georgetown Ministry Center is an organization that I work closely with. They have a day shelter in Georgetown, as you imagine. Georgetown is a very affluent part of Washington, D.C., but given how the homeless are all over the city, that this is a coalition of congregations and faith-based groups that have uh, supported the functioning of this day shelter that has moved, I think, since November, close to over 80 people from the streets into permanent housing. Yes, Miriam's Kitchen has been feeding the unhoused in the D.C. area for decades as well and are fantastic, and they're also building that sense of community. I know I talk about this a lot, but it really does take a village. And having community and support systems in place, not only, one, help through that process of becoming going from unhoused to being housed, but also getting people access to continued support throughout their transitions and just providing that community and safe space support and confidence to to maintain to maintain the economic security that they need to stay housed. So those are just quickly three. And one more, in New York City, sure. And here in Washington, D.C., there's this group called the Community of Sant'Egidio that do provide, in New York, large-scale meals out of Penn Station. But in Washington, D.C., it's based out of Foggy Bottom. And it's more of a sort of a friendship conversation. We build relationships and friendships with the unhoused to see what they need. Because, again, we'll show up with pasta and that's great, but oftentimes they'll say we'll have eaten already or we can't keep that overnight because it's going to get hot and rats are going to get to it. But again, fostering that conversation, knowing when their birthdays are. When was the last time people have greeted these people happy birthday? Or just, again, establishing that dignity that should be afforded to all people, I think is absolutely lacking in this larger conversation, I feel, of what cities can do. What cities can do is get rid of hostile architecture. That's ridiculous. You're right, Mel, what this idea of public spaces no longer being public. I mean, public spaces, by the nature of being public, should be a place for everybody. And yet, by putting armrests, having a bench, but putting an armrest there is basically saying no one's allowed to lay down here. Or having those spikes so that it also discourages people from loitering or sitting. Yes, there's there's a lot of terrible here, but I would probably say, of course, house and feed them is, is the very first thing priority of what you need to do, but there is a larger conversation that needs to happen about acknowledging the inherent dignity and and humanness of these friends. Absolutely. When we talk about the war on homelessness, it's absolutely what we're looking at right now as it's being conducted, a war on unhoused people. And that's just not acceptable. One of the the key things that Eric Adams brought up, he, he brought up how, well, this is undignified. I've seen this and this is undignified. Okay, but these are still people. These how how much dignity do we afford poor people? Because I mean, it's starting with homelessness, but then it extends when you think I'm, I'm a New Orleans resident. After Katrina, they tore out a lot of the housing developments. The word was, well, this wasn't supposed to be permanent housing. This is not supposed to be permanent. But how much money do you have to have before you get to feel a sense of home? Like what entitles you to a sense of belonging and home in just your own space? So it's it's always going to be, there's always going to be a, a caveat when it comes down to having a sense of ownership, empowerment, dignity. There's always a dollar figure on it. That, that's just the that's just the prevailing wisdom right now. When we look at, again, just I have to go back because we think so much in terms of red, blue, but this is a purple problem. 
because it happens everywhere. Like we have to, if we're going to bring people in the room, yes, absolutely bring Texas in, bring Florida into the conversation. But if we're talking about the wealth gap, if we're talking about homelessness, we got to say hello to California. We have to say hello to Illinois. We have to say hello to Washington State. I believe it was Washington State that had the opportunity. There was a, a housing issue. And when it came down to actually getting my brain, because I can't remember if it's Washington or California right now, but there were making changes or attempting to make how zoning changes so that single family and an area zoned for single family homes could be for large density populations. And a bunch of Nice, rich liberals said no, because they don't want it near their homes. When we look at even education, which is a, a, a key factor into pulling people out of poverty, the amount of money that your school gets is determined by how much the houses are in your district. It's rigged, and then the rig is rigged. So there's, there, there has to be, it has to be more than just us looking at what party is doing what, and it has to get down to what we are doing as people, what are we doing to, to our neighbors? <laughs> you know, the un unhoused people are still our neighbors. They're still parts of our community. I grew up, I had to go across town to school and there were five men that I knew. There are five men that you, if you put a picture of them up, you know that you were on Canal Street in, in 1992 because those men are part, were part of our community. And we have to look at them like that. And that means calling on more, not only of ourselves, but also of our representatives. And that takes us to some petitions. Susan, do you mind reading off some of the petitions that we have? I feel like we, me and Athena have been going at it. <laughs> so we would like to hear your lovely voice and, and talk to the petitions. It's 100% okay, because obviously you both are very educated. I appreciate the education for myself a lot. So we have two petitions that we're focusing on. And one of them, it, the title to it is shelter is a human right. We shouldn't have to say that. We shouldn't have to say that I have a right to have a roof over my head. It should just be a given. And so again, that's the title of the petition. The call sign is P as in Peter, N as in Nancy, P as in Peter, S as in Susan, X and then Q as in quiet. And so what we're doing is looking at the, the author of this individual by the name of Kyle, pointing out that every eviction and the, the opening line, I love it. Every eviction is a richer person using the government to force a poorer person into homelessness in order to make a greater profit. And I, I find so much truth in just that one sentence. If you send that call sign to 50409, you can sign on to that petition and you can send it to your governor and your state legislature. The second one that we have is entitled Fund Homelessness Prevention. And again, this speaks to this lack of community services that would go such a long way to resolving or at least mitigating some of the challenges that the unhoused face and that led them to being unhoused in the first place. So that call sign is P as in Peter, J as in Jelly, L as in Larry, O, G as in good, F as in family. And again, type that into 50409 and you can send that to, again, your governor and your legislatures. If neither one of these petitions strikes a chord with you, or says what it is that's in your heart to say, by all means, 
send mayor, send state, send governor to 50409. You can write your own letter, which you can then turn into a petition that you can then invite friends and families to sign on to. So those are the two petitions we're highlighting for today. Thanks so much. And absolutely, because there's those petitions are great, but we don't currently have anything that talks about things like hostile architecture. We don't have anything really addressing these more recent policies that are, or the growing poor tax. I mean, we can't, I don't see any other term that we could use for this because you're literally criminalizing poor people for surviving. There's no, and watching it being defended. Well, it's only a $50 fine. I I was just going to say, one of the things that I find so difficult is this, this issue, like so many others, we place the blame on the individual who has the challenge to begin with. We place the blame on the unhoused. We, I had not thought about the word homeless and the negative connotation that goes along with it, the vitriol that goes along with that one word. And I had not thought about that until you, Mel, educated me on the word unhoused. And then the more I read about it, the more I saw, you know, if, if these same people who are advocating for these policies and these poor taxes use their powers for good, so to speak, look at the money you spend on the architecture. Look at the money you spend on enacting, putting into place these laws, when what we need is that money to be in services for our communities. And services in our local communities help mitigate so many of the challenges that lead to homelessness in the first place, the mental health issues that go untreated. And if they're diagnosed, they're untreated or they're just not diagnosed at all. We don't have any mental health facilities really that people can show up to. I mean, you've got them speckled here and there, but if we turned that attention to what we can do to help, as opposed to placing the blame on them and expecting them, you know, the old bootstrap theory, which frankly is crap, if you ask me, But, you know, if you would just grab your bootstraps and pull yourself up, then all of your problems would be solved. Well, it just doesn't work that way. And we can't lay the problem of the unhoused at their feet and not provide answers and resources. It just, we just, as a human, as humanity, we just shouldn't be doing that. Yeah. Bootstraps don't work when you don't have boots. 100%. It's not a logical expectation for the people who don't have. And then we look at city governments that do have budgets to address the needs of people without homes. So compared to the police budget, New York City's budget for the Department of Homeless Services is relatively small and and was cut by $615 million this year. But it's still something about something around $2.1 billion. And that makes it roughly 50, a little over 50, I think it's 58,000 per person when we look at the homeless population. So $58,000 per person is how the budget breaks down. And of course, that won't all go to an individual. But when you look at when we when you look at that, you have to ask, where are the funds going? If there's absolutely money available for the 65,000 homeless residents, we'll, we'll just stick with New York, the 65,000 homeless residents of New York, where is it going? What is being done? Is it being used wisely? And we have to look at that. We can look at that in, in varying points of city government in any city in the country, 
But we have to look at if the budget is being cut, there still logically should be enough money to support these residents. What's being done? What is the end game since it's clearly not to actually help unhoused people? And there are cities who are beginning to get it right. I think, Athena, you had some um, information on that, on one city who has been answering the call to help unhoused people. I do. And I give Texas a lot of grief. (laughs) But I have to say that Houston, however, has some successes to share. Within the last decade, they've actually cut their unhoused populations down by over 50%, which is truly amazing. They are very organized about it. The Coalition for Homelessness has been around since the 1980s, and they've approximately 30,000 people across Harris, Fort Bend, and Montgomery counties have accessed some of the services that they provide from clothing or food assistance. Some lessons to be learned from that. There was an op-ed in the LA Times because everybody likes to tell Californians what to do, especially when they're doing things well. But what can Houston teach Los Angeles about solving homelessness or some other cities that are experiencing this? So around the same time that Houston really got motivated in addressing their unhoused populations, this was uh, also happening in San Diego, and they both took different approaches to things. And what I think has lent Houston more success in them, the, the article that I'm quoting from the LA Times basically breaks it down. First, it's basically their scale of effort. They've, the, their focus has been almost laser focused on providing affordable permanent housing units, much more, of course, including health and social services to that, but it really is the development of permanent housings to, to facilitate that transition. Second, they're very well organized. They also have a sense of pragmatism. I think even in our own conversations today, we've been talking about dignity and like their worth and the compassion piece to that, which is absolutely critical and important. But Houston, not that they haven't done that, but they have been really making the a, a key strategy about home, defining homelessness as something that needs to be rare, brief, and non-recurring. So they commissioned, they decommissioned eight hopeless, homeless encampments in the last year with pathways to permanent housing. So about 80 to 90% of homeless people have taken them up on that offer in Houston. But so yes, while I tend to lean on the like, we need to talk to them to hear what their needs are. In the case of what Houston's doing, they have a clear sense of the data driving their reasons for doing things. And it really leaves a lot of that compassion rightfully so, to nonprofits, churches to be in charge of shelters and sort of temporary housing. The city is focusing all of its efforts and, and, and resources specifically on the providing of more permanent and affordable housing. Just lastly, in comparison to why they feel that this article at least is saying that Los Angeles is missing the mark on this, is because that nobody is in charge and LA is, is it's a massive urban sprawl, as is Houston. But again, this idea that the laser focus with which the coalition in Houston has been able to dedicate a decade's worth of energy and focus on it is something that they're hoping to inspire Los Angeles to do as well. And there are just some places, I think, that feel as though they have a certain amount of humanitarian credit. So there are things that they can just take their time on. People having homes should not be one of them, especially when we look at how many vacant homes there are. The housing crisis is beyond anything I think any of us have seen before, especially when we look at the fact that a lot of these homes are not owned by people. Like a lot of homes now are owned by corporations, not always corporations in this country. There's a very large company in Canada that owns just an obscene amount of homes here. It all boils down, it will always boil down to profits over people, Whenever we dig into any of these issues, it's all we're always going to be looking at 
how people have gotten the shaft because of a dollar amount. And I don't think there's any nice way to put that. So one of the things I, I just want to reiterate that while we do have open letters, there are, is so much green space that we have to cover when it comes down to unhoused people. And, and this is where we call out to all of you, hostile, hostile architecture, hostile architecture. Thank you. Uh, hostile architecture. What's being done with poor taxes and criminalizing homelessness. The bill in Tennessee, that was the most recent, that came out this week. Uh, the bill in Tennessee, it's HB 0978 and SB 1610. These are, these are definitive things that you can take aim at. Let your representatives know what you think about policies like this and what you want done to, to combat this problem in your own backyard. Because it is something that affects all of us. This is not a somebody else problem. It's a societal problem. And with that means, you know, Athena brought it out before, it takes a village. And it absolutely takes a village. Find your village. Do not underestimate the importance of finding your people and asking the right questions. I remember moving to, moving up north. I'm from New Orleans, so everything is north for me. But I remember moving up north in 2005, right when these kind of hostile architecture moves were taking shape and just sitting down at a bench and realizing there were things on two sides of me and thinking, well, this is dumb in a tourist city. And then I realized, no, it's not dumb. It's what my mama would call having ugly ways because you don't want somebody to lay out on a bench. So examining what those things mean and what can be done and finding a group of people who can effect change. We have ResistBot, we have, we have a Telegram group where we want organizers to find each other. That's one of the main purposes of it. So by all means, join us and find each other. If you need help getting an open letter started, this is why we're here. This is why we do what we do. We love talking to you every week, of course, but this is not the only thing that we do. So by all means, if there are things that we can do to help to get your voice out there, to amplify, please reach out to us. Support at ResistBot. It's really that that easy. And that's that's kind of where we are. I want to give you guys a chance to shout out and take us out of here. Susan, where can we find you? What are you looking at outside of this cluster? What other things are you looking at this week? What has your eye and tell the people where they can find you? I'm on Twitter at TwinThing2. The two is T-O-O because I'm an identical twin, so I'm an also. And one of the things, obviously, the elections are coming, so we're ramping up get-out-the-vote efforts here in Florida and on the Treasure Coast. And I, I just can't say it enough times or loud enough. Make sure you're registered. Make sure your signature matches. Uh, if you need help, take a look at our keyword list. We've got a whole vote suite package. We can, we've got you covered in terms of being able to vote at the end of this year. So that, and I just wanted to give a shout out to one of the organizations that is in my neck of the woods that's really working on the unhoused issue. And it's a place called La Haya. And it's, that stands for love and hope in action. And it's a place where you can go and get a clean shower. You can take a nap, you can get some food. They have a wonderful place in Stewart, Florida. So I just want to give them a shout out. They're doing great work. And if you can support them, please do money, time, it all helps. Thanks so much, Susan. And that's, I'm glad you mentioned that because one of the things when we look at how difficult it can be for people to transition rather from living on the street to housing, if unhoused people do not want to utilize 
the services that you have. That needs to be interrogated. Where are the shortfalls? What needs are you not meeting? Because that is not, that's a, that's a failure on a governmental standpoint. So thank you so much for pointing that out, Susan. And Athena, can you shout out some folks and let us know where, where the people can find you? Sure. I am still on the Twitters at amfule. As for things I have my eye on, Susan mentioned it, elections are coming up. Orrin Hatch passed away from Utah. Not that that's a flippable seat or anything like that, but I think it's important for us to start getting our eyes on what's on key states as well as offices that are going to, to be um, essential in the coming election. I am also working with some folks over here in D.C. that we've hosted on the show before, Jennifer MUZ and Sanctuary DMV. We're getting truckloads of asylum seekers from Texas here in Washington. So it's been an interesting time to actually demonstrate what solidarity with migrants could really look like. So I would encourage all of you to also plug in to the networks of folks working with migrants and refugees to see what can be done, whether that's buying some t-shirts for some kids coming into your cities, picking up some toiletries, or just adding to their Venmo PayPal supplies. Now's a good time. We're ending the Easter octave for the Christian world and the Orthodox worlds are celebrating Easter today, but everybody could need some, could use some love and assistance this spring. So seek out those places and do what you can. Thanks. Thanks so much, Athena. And thank you for joining us this week. If you want to know more about whether it's this topic or just how you can volunteer with ResistBot, you can go to resist.bot. If you'd like to donate, what we do every week, this contacting your representatives, letters to the editor, all the great stuff, all of that, we're powered by people. Yes, we're a bot, but we're actually powered by people. And so we need your help. We need you. So if you'd like to volunteer, also if you'd like to donate, you can go to rs.bot slash donate. Monthly donors get all kinds of neat stuff. So we would love to have you and you can join our community in helping us make the world just a little bit better. We have monthly donors. And so I want to give a shout out to each of you. And we had that's Mary from Pontevedra Beach, Florida. And the focus is Defeat DeSantis. You know how I feel about the random acts of DeSantis. So thank you so much, Mary. You can, again, you can follow us here every week, rs.bot slash video. We're here every Sunday at 1 p.m. on our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Twitter at ResistBot Live and our main account at ResistBot. Our podcast will be up every Monday. You can subscribe to that, rs.bot slash pod. And again, you can join the conversation by using the hashtag LiveBotters. So again, I'm Melanie Dion. This has been ResistBot Live. And I thank you for joining us and see you next week. ResistBot Live originally airs as a live stream every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern on Twitch, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and is brought to you by the same folks behind the chatbot. If you haven't used ResistBot before, it's simple. iPhone users, go to resist.bot on the web and tap the iMessage button. Non-iPhone users, open your text messaging app and compose a new text message. For the phone number, type 50409. In the message field, type resist or any of the keywords you heard on the show. 
You can also direct message ResistBot on Twitter or the Telegram app. For a printable keyword guide and more resources, visit our website at resist.bot. Our website has a complete guide to creating robust public policy or voter turnout campaigns, and we're here to support your activism. Email support at resist.bot if you need help getting started. ResistBot is a non-profit social welfare organization built by volunteers and supported by your donations. You can donate on our website or email volunteer at resist.bot if you want to join our team. ResistBot Live is moderated by Melanie Dion. Our regular panel includes Athena Foulet, Christine Liu, Susan Stutz, and Dr. Joseph Kuhill. Thank you for listening.